Hello, everyone. Uh, on behalf of CME Outfitters, I'd like to welcome you to today's educational activity titled Finding Balance, Optimizing the Treatment of Patients with Pain. Today's program is supported by an independent educational grant from Opioid Analgesic REMS Program Companies and brought to you by CME Outfitters, an award-winning accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians worldwide. And so I'm gonna start by introducing myself. So my name is Jonathan Gouri. Uh, I work in Little Rock, Arkansas at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. I am an associate professor of anesthesiology. I'm also a chronic pain physician. So an anesthesiologist, I did a fellowship in chronic pain medicine. I also have a number of other titles, but I practice chronic pain medicine as my uh, primary specialty, and uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic and to uh, answer any of your questions today. And now I will allow the rest of our panel to introduce themselves. Hi, everyone, and welcome. My name is Dr. Melissa Durham. I'm a pharmacist. Um, I have a background in managing chronic pain. I'm a clinical pharmacist at the USC Pain Center with the University of Southern California. I'm also a practicing community pharmacist. And um, similar to Dr. Gory, I have some other titles. I'm, I'm faculty at USC Mann School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences and an associate dean there. And now Dr. Hyde. Hi, I'm Dr. Carrie Hyde. I am the Regional Medical Director and National Supportive Care Director for uh, patients at Monogram Health. My background is in palliative medicine and internal medicine. I'm also an acupuncturist, a physician acupuncturist, and so have a special interest in holistic uh, pain management, and I'm excited to be here today. Thank you. We have an absolutely outstanding panel. I've worked with both of these providers uh, before, and so I think we're going to have a great discussion. I just want to go over our learning objectives. So our first learning objective today is to utilize knowledge of acute and chronic pain pathways, underlying mechanisms of biopsychosocial factors to clinical assessment and appropriate management of pain. Our second learning objective today is to incorporate strategies from the 2022 CDC guideline for prescribing opioids in the development of safe and effective pain management pain management plans, excuse me, for patients with acute, subacute, and chronic pain. So I'm going to go ahead and get things started for us by really talking about acute and chronic pain pathways. You know, a lot of chronic pain, and honestly, a lot of what patients have dealt with in the opioid epidemic has really stemmed from really surgery or acute injuries. We all know the story of someone going in and having a knee replacement. They get a number of opioids from their surgeon. Their surgeon stops their opioids. They then continue on those opioids with their primary care doctor. And then they're referred to a physician like me. Um, and my colleagues continue those opioids. And then we have policies where we've stopped those opioids. We're gonna cover uh, the CDC guidelines a little bit later. And then those patients have ended up on fentanyl or other street medications, or they've bought medications from other people and developed opioid use disorder. And so when we think about pain and we think about that pathway, it oftentimes start with acute pain or an injury. 
Then it progresses to an acute pain is really the activation of nociceptive fibers. You know, I always say when we stub our toe, we have a presynaptic neuron that sends glutamate to a postsynaptic neuron, and it fires in our brain, and we have both a physiologic response, a brain response, and we have a psychologic response, a mind response to pain. And those really are married, and that's why sometimes two patients who are having the exact same painful episode can express it in different ways. Over time, if you have sustained activation and you have glutamate continuing to fire at the presynaptic neuron, you get what we call sensitization. And that basically means the postsynaptic neuron over time makes it easier for pain signals to propagate. So it continues to have changes at the intracellular level. And a lot of those changes are caused by the by the uh, NMDA receptor. I won't go into too much detail, but you actually get more receptors on the neuron. The neuron action potential changes. And so chronic pain is really a phenomenon of not continued pain, but it's really an intracellular internal total body change to continued pain that actually makes patients desensitize and actually have allodynia hyperalgesia and become really kind of hyper, really hypersensitive to pain. And so you often see with chronic pain patients, they may express pain to things that may not be painful to kind of uh, our regular patients. And then you get remodeling. And that's when you really get that internal full body change where people really on a physiologic level experience pain differently. Um, and then also on a psychologic level, kind of that mind side, once you get desensitized to pain, then actually the way that you react to pain even becomes different. And now I'm going to pass it to Dr. Hyde to really talk more about pain classification. So it's important when we start to think about pain, not only what is the cause of injury and what type of pain it is, which we're going to get into, but how long has it been going on? Because it really dictates what treatment plan you put a patient on. And so just to set kind of some foundational knowledge here, um, acute pain is is defined as uh, less than four weeks. Um, it's usually due to an acute injury disease or abnormal function. And it's an adaptive response. Uh, when you, uh, you know, put your hand on, on a stove, you would get a pain signal to remove your hand from the stove to, to um, protect yourself from injury. Subacute pain, the duration is longer than four weeks and less than 12 weeks. This may be due to attempting to resume normal activities following healing or scar tissue development. And then chronic pain, which I think is where we struggle the most in medicine. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm uh, uh, generalizing here, but it's usually more than 12 weeks. And it's a maladaptive disorder of the somatosensory pain signaling pathways that Dr. Corey just spoke about. Um, and it's usually due to chronic pathology, or it just may be um, continuing um, after the original insult has resolved. So this is one of my favorite things to talk about and teach my, my fellows and trainees. When you look at what type of pain the patient has, it can fall into three different categories. Um, and as this graph shows, it really can't, it's usually not one 
it can be one primarily, but there's usually overlapping components to a pain presentation. And it's very, it's very important that if we do not treat the pain uh, type or origin, you're not going to ever control someone's pain. So let's go through really quickly what these may look like and sound like it from your patients. First and foremost, nociceptive pain arises from actual or threatened tissue damage. Um, and so this is the pain that we think about, again, putting your hand on a stove or hitting your hand with a hammer. It's throbbing. It's hot. It's painful. Um, this is the this is the pain that comes from surgery and getting cut on even professionally, uh, you know, an, an expected pain. Neuropathic pain is something I think we see a lot of, um, and it's the, it is the pain that arises from, uh, diseases in the nervous system. And so, you know, uncontrolled diabetes for years and your, your nerve structure breaks down. Um, so those neuropathies that are like that stocking and glove neuropathy, carpal tunnel syndrome, um, sciatica, uh, you know, I think about like trigeminal neuralgia. I think about um, chemotherapy-induced um, neuropathies. These are the, some of the hardest pains to treat, in my opinion. And what your patients will describe is anything from numb, tingling, sharp, shooting, um, hot, burning. I think of like a herpetic lesion. That's a that's a neuropathic pain. And then nociplastic or inflammatory pain, this is from altered nociception despite no clear evidence of actual or threatened tissue damage. Um, and this is influenced by biopsychosocial factors. I wish I could see everyone and say, how many of you have a really hard time with this pain? This is our fibromyalgia. This is our CRPS. We can't see that there was an injury that causes the symptoms we're seeing in our clinics. And it's really important that we are prescribing and treating the origin of pain for the right thing. What increases the risk of developing chronic pain? You know, if if uh, I come into your office and um, I've had an injury, I'm well supported, you know, I have um, good family, I'm educated, I have access to resources um, versus a patient. And, and I think Dr. Gorey spoke about this earlier that, you know, is in the same motor vehicle accident, same mechanism of injury. And she's a smoker and had, you know, trauma from her past. She has no family or support. You know, that really plays a role in how long that pain uh, may last and how it presents in each of us. So um, as we look at this screen, uh, you know, there are certain risk factors that increase the risk of chronic pain. Um, and I won't read through all of these, but I think importantly, you know, when we talk about tobacco and alcohol use, you know, that's a somewhat modifiable risk factor if we can be really proactive, especially in patients that may be getting surgery. Um, you know, age, sex, we can't, uh, you know, modify those as much, but we could get them more nutrition. We could ask them to start walking around the neighborhood, getting better, better sleep hygiene. And just remember that when you see a patient that you think, you know, this person might not do well if I, you know, give them this opioid or this pain medicine. Just remember all of these risks in your head about who may convert to a chronic pain picture. I really appreciate some of the things you said, Dr. Hyde. Um, one of them is kind of that idea that acute pain is really functional, that it really does prevent us from injuring ourselves. And you used the example of putting your hand on a stove. And then I bet the converse, when we get to chronic pain, it's really dysfunctional pain, right? It's like taking something that's really good for us and then it converting to something that probably isn't so good for us. 
I really want to bring Dr. Durham into the conversation and kind of talk about functional assessment. So can you talk about how you know, you assess patients' function and how you identify the goals of care when you treat patients with pain? Yeah, sure. So I think that the classic way that most folks understand pain assessment is, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, what is your pain today? That kind of numeric pain intensity score reported verbally. Um, but that really only gives us a very limited picture of what is really happening with the patient and how it's impacting their life. And we will talk about it in an upcoming slide, the biopsychosocial model and how it really does um, impact all areas of life, especially with chronic pain. Um, so you have to really go beyond just the numeric reporting. Um, for example, if you have a patient who um, they start out with their pain at an eight or nine, you give them a medication, it comes down to a three or four. Yay, you, great job, but they're so sedated they can't even get off the couch you haven't really been very helpful. <laughs> so the focus should really be on restoring functionality and not just treating numbers. And that's, you know, it's a pretty common basic principle that we understand from medical practices that we treat the whole patient and not and not the numbers. Um, so it's just really important to, to take that in context on the whole, the whole picture of the patient when assessing them. Thank you. Dr. Hyde, how do you assess pain with your patients? Yeah, so um, I love what you said and pointing out the numeric scare, scale, which is really kind of the standard thing, especially in hospitals. You know, that's a measure of success if you're at a three. And I love your, um, you know, if it's someone who's so sedated, they can't get the nutrition they need to heal from their surgery. Like, are we really doing them a service? I actually, in the outpatient setting, um, and this is where I get very palliative care for all of you, is I love to ask, what is one thing that you would do if I had your pain control? controlled. And I get, first of all, it's a great, you know, uh, relationship builder. I love to hear, I want to go to the, you know, amusement park with my grandchildren. So the next time I see them, I go, did you go to the amusement park with your children? And if it's yes, I go, okay, we have done it. Like, you know, I don't disregard their number, but if it's still an eight, but they are going to work, they are sleeping better. They are doing that one thing. Then I am like, okay, let's reset some goals. Now, what do you want to do? Let's continue looking at that. And I think that's one simple question that can really um, help your practice. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Hyde. And I just wanted to add, you know, I, I think we have to look at patients' baseline and then see where they are, especially from a functional standpoint. Because I agree with both of you that looking at a number but not looking at how it's affected someone's quality of life is not helpful. And so I always say to a lot of my colleagues, that if I have a patient who's a marathon runner and then they're now a 5K runner, that's just as concerning as someone who goes from a walker to a wheelchair and really looking at stuff that people want to do and how they've had to scale that back due to their pain. Um, I also wanted to remind all of you that we are really excited to answer questions. There's one I wanted to address right now, and that is uh, a pay, uh, one of our attendees asked about a patient who has a, a non-healed bone fracture, and that's really complicating their day-to-day -day life. And is that, you know, potentially chronic pain? And I would say yes. Anytime someone has pain for more than, we don't know the exact time, we normally estimate it at eight to 12 weeks. Some of those kind of cellular um, pathologic changes happen at the postsynaptic neuron in the brain, 
And those patients, again, start to have kind of chronic pain and they start to have kind of that dysfunctional pain. So once a fracture is set and it should have healed, any pain that lasts longer than the kind of normal course of injury, I would say that then becomes a dysfunction in nerve firing and not a dysfunction in the actual pathology. Um, with that, we will continue our presentation. I'll pass it to uh, Dr. Durham to then talk about the biopsychosocial model of pain. Yeah, and I'm excited to talk about this. This is actually one of my favorite topics, similar to Dr. Hyde with um, hers. But um, yeah, so the idea of the biopsychosocial model is um, that chronic pain especially, I mean, acute pain as well can be impactful in this way, but chronic pain especially, which is the majority of patients that I um, see, really does impact all aspects of one's life. And so it takes a comprehensive approach to address the pain um, adequately. I mean, um, think multimodal therapy, think multidisciplinary care. That's really the gold standard uh, for managing chronic pain and addressing all aspects of this biopsychosocial model that you see on your slide here. Um, we have the biological component, such as like pain pathology and inflammation, the psychological component. Um, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm a pain management clinical pharmacist, but I probably spend equal amounts of time or more um, addressing underlying uh, mental health issues or mental health issues that have developed as a result of someone living and suffering from chronic pain. Um, and when you have someone who has a concurrent um, mood disorder, like depression, anxiety, or sleep disorders, you are not going to be able to get their pain under control at all unless that underlying comorbidity is addressed. Um, and remember, too, that there's kind of a vicious cycle that can exist where, you know, someone ends up developing chronic pain from an injury similar to what we've alluded to. Um, that chronic pain impacts their social life, their marital life. They no longer can work or do some of the things they enjoy. Depression results. Depression itself can cause pain, pain worsens, and around and around we go, right? Um, and a similar vicious cycle for sleep as well. So pain causes a disruption in sleep, your sleep worsens, your pain gets worse, and around we go. So we have to really interrupt those vicious cycles that can occur um, when looking at the psychological component, um, as well as the others. Um, it's very common, as I mentioned, that folks with chronic pain may no longer be able to participate and their lives in the ways that they normally would. The majority of my patients are on permanent disability. And um, for so many of us, our identity is very much tied to um, the meaningful things that we do in our life, our occupations, both paid and unpaid, right? Um, the things that we do for, for joy and for um, fulfillment. And sometimes when those go away, it can lead to a lot of social exclusion. Um, the cost um, that can result from loss of pay, the economic impact um, can be really um, significant for folks. Um, and then also, I'll lead to on the behavioral side, we have this element of the biopsychosocial model that includes, um, I mentioned sleep already, but nutrition and exercise. You know, when you suffer from chronic pain, your mobility can potentially go down, which can lead to progressive deconditioning, further demobilization, and increase in pain, and another vicious cycle that can occur. So we really do have to take a holistic, comprehensive approach in addressing the, all these elements of the biopsychosocial model. 
And part of doing that is a very comprehensive pain assessment. All the things that kind of go into this are included on the slide, like a history, physical exam, your diagnostics, um, risk screening, which um, is an important component that is addressed in our new, um, not well, not just our new guidelines, but the 2016 and the 2022 guidelines. But also a part of this um, pain assessment is really this relationship that is um, crucial to build this trusting shared decision making um, relationship between the provider and the patient, because what we know is that when that occurs um, and at the pain assessment point is the earliest part that you can start to establish that. And when that shared decision making trusting relationship occurs, you do have better outcomes. Um, uh, it's it's far better, <laughs> especially when you're talking about difficult subjects like approaching tapering um, or um, maybe some um, not healthy drug behaviors that can pop up along the way. If you're assessing for an opioid use disorder, that trusting relationship is really cr crucial. And one of the things, too, that's important to remember when we're talking about pain assessment is that there are certain populations that are at risk for um receiving an inaccurate, incomplete, um, inappropriate pain assessment, um, including people of color, the LGBTQ community, women, elderly, those at the end of life, patients with a substance use disorder, uh, other mental illnesses, cancer, and sickle cell disease. And one of the reasons that we would like to bring this up is um, that as providers, we keep that in the back of our mind um, when we're working with our patients and knowing that sometimes we just need to pay, we should pay everyone <laughs> special attention, like give everyone 100% of our care, but knowing that in the background that sometimes these folks receive um, subadequate care to make sure that it's on our radar um, as, we, as we work with them. Now, we talked about the numeric scales earlier and how it's not always ideal, but there are other functional scores that we use that are very useful. Um, some of them are outlined on the slide for you. Um, one of the ones that I use um, is the, the PEG scale. It's sort of your second bullet down on your slide, the pain, intensity, enjoyment of life, and general activity. That's most common for us in our practice. And it's actually a really short questionnaire um, where you say, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, what has your pain been on average over the last seven days? Um, on a scale of zero to 10, how has your pain impacted your enjoyment of life? 10 being it completely interferes. And then general activity with the same question, similar to enjoyment of life. And that's a quick way to, to um, assess functionality and impact of pain on patient's life. And then we use other important tools for that psychological component. Uh, the PHQ-9 for assessing depression, the GAD-7 for um, ass assessing the presence of anxiety, and then some of the other tools that are outlined on this slide, like PROMISE, for example, is much more, um, it can be, there's a few, there's a short form and a longer form, but it can be a little bit more comprehensive, and then the SF-36, which um, looks more at quality of life measures. But as a reminder, all of these um, scoring systems have limitations, they have gaps, and um, a lot of that comes down to sort of like the art and the practice of clinicians to getting a, an adequate and comprehensive picture. Dr. Hyde, do you want to help us with a review of kind of the opioid trends and then the overdose trends and CDC guidelines? 
I would love nothing more than to overview this. It's a, it's a necessary step in every pain lecture because, you know, I think we have to measure backward and really look at where we came from and then um, move forward. So if we look at um, these two graphs, let me orient you very quickly. So the left one is prescription opioid use, MMEs, um, uh, so morphine milliequivalents per day. And it is dispensed MMEs is on that left-hand corner or left-hand side, X-axis, Y-axis. <laughs> it's late here. Um, and then uh, your bottom line there is the year. And so as you see, it really peaked right around the early 2010 time um, when we noticed that MME prescriptions, you know, that you were having a lot of MMEs, up to 250 MMEs per day. Um, again, we, we know what was maybe corresponding to a lot of this. I think we've all probably um, either been around and experienced it or know the history. Um, on the right, um, it shows overdose deaths. And this is kind of a stark graphic to me. Um, also, the, the bottom line there is the year. And, and the red dotted line is when the first CDC guidelines in 2016 were released. And what's important is, you know, uh, you know administration um, legislation came out and guidelines to really reduce overdose death because they saw it was a problem. Um, and what they did was beca they became very restrictive on MMEs. Unfortunately, Look at the right graph. What happened after the restriction went into place? Overdose deaths increased. Yes, it was through fentanyl, which is that blue line, um, and uh, primarily fentanyl, and, and it says methadone there. We had 2016 were very restrictive opioid policies, and I believe the authors didn't intend them to be. They Again, they were guidelines, not hard and fast rules. But what happened was you had a lot of entities kind of going off those policies, uh, pharmaceutical companies, um, uh, healthcare plants. What we saw was, you know, all of these rules and regulations went into place, and it was you cannot exceed 45 MMEs per day. And, um, you know, what happens when someone is having severe pain and we have just dropped their MMEs per day? I'm not going to give you that anymore. My, my institution won't let me. They turn to other things. And we actually saw an increase in overdose deaths. And I think that that's really um, important to know that that's kind of what happened with those guidelines. There were new guidelines that were released in 2022. And we'll get into the differences, um, but I do want to just make sure that I've covered this slide. Um, we saw it amongst all levels of, of you know, guidelines, whether it was a pr clinical practice, my practice actually, even being a palliative care practice um, where I was seeing cancer pain said, if there's a patient that's over greater than 90 MMEs per day, please explain why. I mean, everyone in my clinic was probably had MMEs over 90 days, but my institution required the explanation. Um, the PDMP really, um, it, while it's a great tool, um, it it doesn't show a whole picture, and it actually cultivated a lot of discrimination. To, to um, Dr. Durham's point earlier, who suffered our marginalized population, and I think that that's something that we have to be very cognizant of is our past. Um, it was good intent. It was well-intentioned. It did not produce the desired effect. And so in 2022, um, the CDC released another set of guidelines. And it's at face value, when you read through the guidelines, they look very similar to 2016. There was a long um, 
a long uh, letter to the reader saying, this is, you should not take this literally. These are just guidelines, right? Um, but we do want to review with you just kind of the key changes from 2016 to 2022. So you're up to date on those and you can certainly look them up. They have some great interactive websites to kind of look at it. So the emphasis on evaluating um, pain now is to look at the origin and use that biopsychosocial model. So again, holistic care, taking care of the whole patient and making sure you're addressing all different spheres of pain. But using your medical judgment to weigh risks and benefits. So a lot of uh, physicians I've talked to and other prescribers have said, you know, autonomy was really taken away from me with these guidelines. And I think importantly, we all know that patient who benefits from from opioids and um, may be a low risk and we could continue inching those up above the guideline frame. Um, the third uh, big cha key change is that um, the encouragement of opioid safety through opioid through patient education and harm reduction tools, so urine drug screens, PDMP checking, um, as well as um, pain agreements. There's some there's some debate out there about that. And then screening and treatment of recommend, recommended for opioid use disorder rather than punishment. Um, you know, there's a lot of stigma attached to opioid use disorder, um, dirty young you know, drug screens. We have to be very careful with the way that we talk about these things um, because it really labels patients. And I think it fur further widens the gap between adequate care and adequate pain management and patients. And then working towards safe management of patients on long-term opioids. So those patients that really um, are doing well functionally, how do we support that and make sure that they are, um, you know, doing it as safely as possible? Do they have naloxone in the home? Can we make sure that they have a, you know, um, all of the things in place to make sure that they are safe? Thank you for that overview. Thank both of you. Um, before we shift gears, I wanted to address a couple of the questions that we've gotten from our attendees. And Dr. Durham, I wanted to toss it to you. We had a question about kind of you know, you work in a large hospital system, and how do you kind of help your hospital staff or your colleagues or your nursing colleagues really evaluate pain without using pain scale? Because certain patients in certain cultures or certain patients who, you know, may have lower health literacy may not be able to understand pain scales. Well, that's a really great question, and I, I actually primarily work outpatient, um, so maybe even you could answer this better than me, Dr. Corey, <laughs> but um, I do know that um, taking into con consideration those cultural elements is really crucial um, when looking at folks who might um, present to be more stoic or in cultures where pain is a lot more stigmatized and folks um, perceive it as maybe just like a natural aging process um, versus something that really needs to be addressed. So that, that's crucial to to incorporate that. But as far, but maybe, I don't know, maybe I should flip it back to you for that question or Dr. Hyde. Yeah, no, I think I think it I agree with you. It's challenging. And, you know, in a lot of hospital systems, you have multiple scales that can be chosen. So whether it's a faces scale or a number scale, you know, I think one of the challenges we have in our field is that VAS is really the gold standard that's been used for research. And so then insurance companies often require VAS to really be able to approve certain interventions or certain medications. So I think it's just also helping patients understand that it's okay to communicate your pain in whatever way is best for you. 
and then helping them understand the importance of letting you know that they're having pain so you can treat it. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to address kind of two more questions. One that's really near and dear to my heart because uh, they asked about complex regional pain syndrome, which is a disease that I have published a lot about and is probably uh, something I see a lot in my practice that I really super specialize in. And it really said, what do you do to reassure that type of patient? One of the challenges with patients who have really rare pain disease states is that they oftentimes haven't been heard. And they've had a lot of people who have told them that their disease is not real or it's in their head. And they often do want to come in and just kind of download. And I think one of the strongest things that I do in my practice for a lot of patients is to just say, I hear you. Mm -hmm. um, and just allow them to understand that you know, I may not be able to help them today, but I'm going to really try my hardest to make sure that they're heard and I'm not going to desert them and dump them off to another physician. Um, we're going to move forward to kind of our next topic, which is pain treatment. And I'm going to throw a question to both of you. Um, and I'm going to start with Dr. Hyde because we have a specific question in the chat about patients who are potentially dying from cancer. And so can you talk a little bit about kind of pain treatment and kind of how some of these guidelines have affected that treatment in either palliative or hospice care situations? Yeah, so um, it's a really great question, and I think that it's a, it's a little bit of a complex answer. Maybe it's not, and I'm making it more complex in my mind, but I would say that, you know, how many times did I have a patient that came in and was on, you know, pain medicine, that a lot of, pain, you know, high MMEs per day, who then got cancer and had a different type of pain. A, their pain was pretty difficult to control. Um, and then I would even say that with restrictions, they were really struggling with finding a practitioner to even prescribe their baseline medications for their chronic low back pain on top of their pancreatic cancer that's now very painful. Mm -hmm. So I would say if you're not enrolled in hospice, um, while there are really good, you know, thoughts around, oh, your palliative care, you can just do whatever. I mean, we're still held to the same standard that you are and that our primary care, you know, colleagues are in terms of prescribing. I think we're more, maybe more comfortable with high MMEs and knowing that because that's our population. Um, but I would say that people would come to me completely off of opioid because their doctor didn't feel comfortable prescribing it and they were suffering with cancer pain. And that was really hard. Um, and then, you know, hospice, there's a lot of, um, leniency there, um, just from the guidelines. I think everyone accepts and knows in the United States anyway, that, you know, a dying patient doesn't need to suffer. Um, it's very variable depending on, on what you use, um, what's local, what's covered by your Medicare, you know, benefit for hospice on what you use for that. Um, but I, I see a lot of um, looser restrictions on, on a patient who's enrolled in hospice care. Um, you know, I would still say that it's challenging to get good pain control um, sometimes in a palliative care patient, especially if they don't have cancer. So I don't want to like put it out there, but not every palliative care patient has cancer. And that's really hard to, you know, I, I see a lot of end-stage renal disease right now and they have a lot of pain and they're not ready to stop dialysis. What do you do? I can't prescribe them medications. Um, you know, because the, you know, all of the administrative barriers and red tape that I can't really get them the quality of life they need. 
Um, so I, I hope that answered the question. If not, you know, shoot it back in the text. Um, but certainly uh, restrictions have have absolutely impacted my practice um, and we just do what's best for the patient given our circumstances. Dr. Durham, a quick rapid fire question because I want to get back to the slides. Uh, is there a new or emerging treatment that you're really excited about? You know, we have like our armamentarium for pain management that hasn't changed that dramatically over the last 15 years that I've been doing pain management. I'm excited to see more and more folks utilizing buprenorphine for chronic pain. Um, I'm excited with the success that we've had using ketamine um, for chronic pain and some of the new data that's out there um, for its use in treatment of depression. Um, and then on sort of the substance use side, um, there's been a huge paradigm shift in um, how substance use disorders have been managed, the accessibility of it, and the way that we talk about it, and the destigmatization of, a, of it, of a um, going from, you know, it's not no longer more failure, but it's a chronic brain disease, and, and a lot of folks really understanding that now, um, along with the accessibility of naloxone, which actually recently went OTC. So those are some of the top things that I think um, have shifted recently that are really promising. Yeah, I'm going to give a couple of quick answers, uh, mainly because they were discussed in the chat. But one is low-dose naltrexone. Um, I now use that for fibromyalgia or centralized pain syndromes. So I think that has been really helpful. Um, I'm also a big fan of topicals. So either compounded creams or there's actually, you know, I'm excited for deep diabetic peripheral neuropathy treatments. Um, there are now capsaicin patches that you can use for patients that are high dose and prescribed in the office. So I'm a big fan of topical pain, uh, especially for patients who have side effects. And then as an interventional pain physician, um, I was actually on the study that helped bring to market uh, neuromodulation or spinal cord stimulation for diabetic peripheral neuropathy. I think electroceuticals are going to completely revolutionize pain management in the future. Um, and so with that, I'm going to keep moving forward and pass the floor back to Dr. Hyde to talk about multimodal approaches to pain care. Yeah, I'm going to do this slide very quickly because I think that Dr. Durham and I have really kind of gone back and forth on this, and this is just kind of the putting it all together slide. Um, and and what I think that the takeaway is when you are treating pain, a treat the whole person, and you you will be successful. Um, treat the different types of pain because there are probably multiple types. It's not just primary, you know, all neuropathic and gabapentin. I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to use drug names, but a medication can take care of it. Um, I think, you know, they have medications listed down here, behavioral health that Dr. Durham is very passionate about, and I, I see it too. Um, if I can get someone's depression, anxiety under control and their sleep better, I can almost improve their pain by 80%. I feel like that's, that's a me number, but that's an important aspect to taking care of someone's pain. Um, and then you've got procedural interventions. And Dr. Gorey and I have practiced um, in the past together, and you know, if I can't get someone's pain under control and we're reaching a max level on their pain medicine, I would send it over to him and say, can you please, you know, block this nerve for me? Because I, I'm like, I am restricted on how much more opioid I can do. Um, and so use your colleagues, uh, make sure that you're using the physical and restorative health interventions as well, like exercise, stretching, physical um, therapy, massage. So all of these are ideas to um, holistically care for your patient. We'll kind of dive into a little bit of those next. 
Um, non-pharmacologic therapies, things we don't want you to forget about. So lifestyle treatments, those are the hardest. You know, there's a lot of medications on the market now that are, are quick, easy fixes, um, which I think our culture really likes. Um, you know, I can just take a shot or, or a pill and, and lose a little bit of weight. Um, but really, um, lifestyle change and doing healthier things is going to be uh, the baseline for helping with chronic pain. Uh, physical rehabilitation, there are a ton of, there's a great evidence behind all of these, especially Tai Chi, massage, postural support, which I need. I sit in front of a computer almost all day. Mind-body uh, techniques. Um, don't forget cognitive behavioral therapy. This is a very powerful one that we need to utilize um, very often in patients who have maladaptive um, thinking about their pain and what it means. Um, I'm, as you know, uh, an acupuncturist, and I think it's important to utilize that if that is not cost prohibitive for your patient and it's available. It's not widely used because um, there's just not good um, uh, reimbursement for it from physicians and, and things like that. So uh, just importantly, you know, go into a yoga studio and get a massage uh, and uh, getting acupuncture sounds great in theory, but really tailor it to your patient and if they can afford it and if it's available in your area. And then again, all of the device and procedure-based interventions that you can do that aren't as, in, they're invasive, but they are not as long-term medications that have a lot of side effects. Dr. Durham, can you go over some of the pharmacotherapy for pain? Sure. Um, so there's a variety of non-opioid pharmacotherapies that are listed on the slide that are in the guidelines. Um, Dr. Gorey and I have also mentioned others that aren't necessarily in the guidelines, but just because they're not in the guidelines doesn't mean it's not evidence-based medicine. You know, we mentioned ketamine, we mentioned low-dose naltrexone, but these are the ones from the 2022 guidelines. And um, I think that if everyone takes away anything from us today or from me today on this topic of non-opioids versus opioids is the mantra of optimize and minimize. So the idea is you want to optimize all of the adjuvants, all of the non-opioid um, medications as much as possible while minimizing the opioids as much as you can. And that approach is usually the best way to go about um, managing meds for someone with, with, with chronic pain. Um, so you should be asking questions like what types of medications um, or what mechanism of action is missing that would really benefit this type and duration of pain or this class of of pain in this patient? Um, are the doses titrated to effect? Have they had an adequate trial? Are there medications that maybe is on their failed med list that are worth a shot again because it's been years and the patient's status has changed? Um, so optimize and minimize um, when it comes to the non-opioid pharmacotherapy agents. And then a little bit about acute uh, pain management with opioids from, from the new guidelines. Um, the old, the 2016 guidelines did not address acute pain. Um, and so the fact that it was included this time was a really great addition. But we're looking at opioids for severe traumatic injuries, invasive surgeries, and severe acute pain when other non-opioids are um, not an option. Um, and similar to the 2016 guidelines, we want to make sure we're using short-acting agents as needed, lowest effective dose for shortage of duration, and as I mentioned before, optimizing um, others. Um, one of the sort of newer emphasis um, elements from the new guidelines is looking to um, taper opioids, even if a patient has been on it for a shorter amount of time um, for more than a few days. 
They also outlined when to avoid opioids in acute pain. Um, if they're not recommended for a spine and all of the indications you see on the slide, but remember these are guidelines, right? Um, I just know that I've had a kidney stone, <laughs> it's like TMI, but um, you know, every, all the providers need to use their judgment of like what's gonna be effective if someone's in severe pain. Um, but the, these indications on the slide um, are typically not gonna be um, something that we wanna use an opioid first line and always, always weighing risk versus benefits for all of them. And individualizing care, as you've probably gotten this point from us um, throughout the presentation today, uh, but some of the best practices for um, continual monitoring and management of patients who are on opioid therapy is seeing them at regular intervals. I see all of my patients every one to three months. Um, being very good about tracking their pain and functionality, and not just overall for the patient, but actually for each individual therapy too. We go through medication by medication to see how much each different med is improving um, their functionality and to assess if, if it's even um, necessary for them to continue or can we pull meds off um, if, there's, if they're getting a subtherapeutic effect. Always evaluating for risk of, of opioid misuse, um, optimizing others, like I mentioned, and then um, referring to specialists as needed and assessing whether or not we need to adjust, taper, um, or, or modify their medication regimen in any way. You know, I, I, I wanted to touch on kind of the telemedicine and the COVID-19 pandemic, and the DEA allowed a temporary rule for us to be able to prescribe controlled substances via telemedicine. And that's been continued. And that's something that we can really use to our advantage to treat patients who are in marginalized communities. You know, I practice in Arkansas. I often have patients who travel from three, four hours away. And so the ability in some of these, especially rural communities, I also lived in New York, where you can be four miles away and it can take you two hours to get to me. Um, so even in urban communities, it can be helpful to use telemedicine to really extend care. We also have to be mindful of our local laws. So unfortunately here in Arkansas, it actually is against the law or against the medical board to change doses of opioids via telemedicine. So you can continue prescribing via telemedicine, but if you wanna change a dose, you actually have to do a full exam and bring that patient in. And so while the federal government gives you certain allowances, it's important to understand what's happening at your state level. And I wanted to toss a quick question out to Dr. Hyde. You know, as you said, you currently use telemedicine a lot and it's really the primary uh, way that you interact with patients. Can you talk a little bit about how you use telemedicine and how you've used telemedicine to treat either your either pa patients with pain or your palliative care patients? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll kind of get to it quickly because I know we have some more substance behind these slides, but I do think it's a tool, like Dr. Gorey said, but with a lot of restrictions and you have to know and understand your state license. I think I hold a, like 25 state license now and trying to remember all of those uh, different rules and regulations is very difficult. Um, they vary from state to state. And so, um, 
you know, personally, I, I see 100% of patients uh, through telemedicine and, and, like I said, 20 to 30 states in the United States. Um, I don't typically write controlled substances because of the regulations, but I absolutely can um, give other recommendations um, and prescribe medications, you know, pharmacologics, things like that, that are not opioids or controlled substances. Um, and so, you know, I think that you have to be very careful and mindful if you have an established relationship with someone and they can't make it to your office um, and you need to refill them and they're, you know, you know them. I think that it's a great tool to use. I mean, definitely pull that lever if you need to. And as we talk about um, and thank you for that answer, as we talk about kind of state regulations versus federal regulations, there's a couple of questions in the chat. I wanted to touch on really quickly. Mm -hmm. One was about naloxone. Um, and, you know, different states have different laws about co-prescription of naloxone. And, um, you know, now it's, you know, the federal laws are changing that it may be available over the counter. Um, you know, in Arkansas, we are required to co-prescribe it over a certain OME level. So definitely understand what your local laws are. And similar to cannabis, and not to touch on it, <laughs> too much, but, you know, every state has its own restrictions. And one of the challenges is because it's federally illegal, we really haven't been able to do the level of um, research on the effectiveness of, of cannabis on the U.S. population. A lot of that research has been has been done in Israel and other countries. But I think it's important to understand. I know in Arkansas, we don't necessarily prescribe cannabis if but what we can do is uh, check that someone has a condition that qualifies them to choose to use medical cannabis on their own. And so really understanding your local kind of regulations is going to be really important. Mm -hmm. uh, now I'm going to pass it back to Dr. Durham to talk about monitoring opioid use, because this is something that's really heavy in our question bank right now. Yeah, so these risk reduction and harm reduction strategies that we've been alluding to are really crucial. Um, just as crucial to figuring out which med to give someone is how to appropriately um, monitor them. So um, one of the things that we've been doing for years and years is monitoring the prescription, the state prescription drug monitoring programs when we prescribe and also dispense um, controlled substances. But something that's kind of interesting and new in the guidelines is this emphasis that now we need to tell the patients we're doing it, <laughs> advise them that we're doing it, tell them that we're doing it to emphasize their own safety. A lot of times it's part of a, um, uh, a patient provider um, controlled substance agreement, and it's a crucial piece of patient education. Um, it's, it's not really realistic to think that we can check these systems and no one will know anymore. Everybody knows it's out there. So we have to talk about it and um, we have to make it a conversation about um, you know safety with our patients. Same um, conversation when it comes to urine drug screening. Um, you know, you'll have different policies in place depending on your practice and how often and when um, you choose to check urine um, on patients. Um, and we do that to both check for adherence. You know, are they actually taking the meds that we are prescribing? And we're also checking to see if patients are taking other substances that they're not supposed to, like illicit substances. So that also needs to be an important conversation focused on safety. Um, and um, that should just be a really trust building um, part and a very clear way that we sort of lay out the, the rules of the game, so to speak, of when we're prescribing opioids. 
And then when to consider tapering opioids. So um, it's been an interesting journey for me in my career. I started out teaching people how to use opioids and then how to uh, use opioids safely and then how to use anything but opioids. And now we're talking about how to use how to taper opioids. <laughs> it's been um, quite the arc. Um, but we do consider tapering opioids in, in certain patients. It's not a hard and fast cutoff um, for all. It's not a one-size-fits-all if everyone gets to, has to be tapered down to less than 90 MME or less than 50 MME. Um, you need to use your clinical judgment. But when um, a new treatment is needed, um, it might be warranted to taper. If there is safety concerns, if you um, identify certain um, evidence of misuse, of, and actually we're not even, that's not even really the best word to use anymore, but sometimes we can't find an alternative, but evidence of um, inappropriate use of their medications or if there's a safety concern, um, then um, th that would be an indication for tapering. And if any, there's any worsening medical comorbidities. So for example, right now I have an older patient who has low back pain and multiple sclerosis who we've been managing pretty well. Um, with ketamine and methadone, actually, for a long time. And um, cognitive impairment is becoming a very big issue as um, the, the neurological part of his disease worsens. And so we're tapering um, some of the more um, CNS-affecting medications so that way, hopefully, it doesn't impact his, his cognition. So I think it's important because I was not just, I love the arc um, and I'm, I'm riding that wave with you um, that, you know, where, you know, we're at a point where how do you taper chronic opioid therapy? And I remember five to 10 years ago trying to look up guidelines and there were none. And so we've come up, you've got a panel of experts here and we've really looked at the data. And, and I think this is for based on some of our clinical practice. Number one and is, and it's not on here, I, I would absolutely get buy-in from the patient. Um, if you are tapering their uh, therapy, cite the reasons you are tapering it very clearly and then get their buy-in. You're going to be much more successful to say, I'm going to do this um, do you want to reduce it one pill a day or do you want to reduce? It's like telling your kid, do you want the green socks or the red socks? Tell them to choose and then they get to control. It's all about control. Make sure you are going very slow. And, and the recommendation is a decrease of 10% of the original dose per week is really reasonable. You're not going to have major withdrawal um, symptoms from that. But sometimes you've got a patient who's been on something for 10, 15 years, and I think a slower taper is justified. I remember um, taking over a panel of patients from one of my colleagues who dropped it 10% like a year. <laughs> That's really slow. But, I mean, it was just a very gen gen gentle taper. Um, make sure that you are, if, if this is out of your scope, someone, and it's always someone who's coming to your practice from someone else, and they're on 250 MMEs per day, and you just don't feel comfortable with it, call on your local specialist if you have them. And we'll talk in the next slide about who those specialists may be. And then make sure that they are supported, offer naloxone um, to make sure overdose prevention. And I think um, an important point here is that, um, yeah, so the go slow, I knew this point was on there, is that if a patient is tapering, 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 has an acute pain episode and takes a bunch, oh, I, I used to be on this safely, they could overdose. So please educate them that they can't go back to their old dose if they have been stable on a new dose for some time without talking to you first. Um, and then it's very important to say most of my patients 
do really well. They have improved function and not significantly worse pain. And that's really important. People go, no, that's not true, Dr. Hyde. And then they'll come back, you know, six months later, I go, see, you're doing okay. We're, we got this. And so the next slide really is going to go over who to refer to. Just don't forget your specialist. You know, we're kind of nearing the end of time, so I don't want to take up uh, the last few minutes. Um, pain specialists like Dr. Gorey, addiction specialists, uh, mental health, psychiatry, and then certainly your palliative care. If someone has a life-limiting illness, not just cancer, um, end-stage heart failure, end-stage uh, end anything, liver, lung, um, ALS, nerve, nerve uh, you know, stroke, things like that, please refer them to our, our specialty. We'd love to take care of them. Yeah, and I want to go over our SMART goals, really making sure that they're specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. And so some of those goals are really incorporating that biopsychosocial and behavioral factors into your pain care really aligning your treatment choice to pain origin. Like we said, making sure that you're using the right treatment for the right patient. Limiting new opioid prescriptions to acute and severe pain and starting with other modalities early if you feel that that's appropriate. And also routinely assessing and monitoring for the risk and benefits of opioids, making sure you discuss that with the patient. And innovating or initiating individualized tapers when that's indicated. And of course, like Dr. Hyde said, making sure you get patient buy-in and also kind of updating the guidelines that you're using and really looking at the 2020 CDC guidelines instead of the 2016 guidelines, really to make sure that we're doing what's best for our patients. Uh, we don't have a lot of time for questions. I wanted to quickly address a few of them that have been in the chat. I wanted to call out a few papers. So uh, Lynn Cohen wrote a paper about buprenorphine management and co-prescribing with other opioids and when to stop buprenorphine. So that's a good resource for buprenorphine management. There's also a great paper that was written by the Dartmouth group about the, the dosing for low-dose naltrexone. That's been asked a couple of times. You normally start with one milligram and increase by one milligram per month until you get to about three milligrams. And I wanted to throw one last question to either of you. There was somebody who asked if you had any advice for someone who's getting started in pain medicine. So I'll give you 10 seconds each. Do it, ask for help, and seek out good mentors. And Dr. Durham? Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say the mentor thing too. Like even if you don't know anybody, I remember when I started, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know anybody. I just like found someone from, you know, my my academic community who was doing pain management and reached out and got some really good mentorship. Um, so I, I, that's a big piece of advice, I would say. <laughs> well, I want to thank our panel. I think this was a great discussion. I apologize to any of the questions we didn't get to, um, but that's all we have time for today. Don't forget to visit the Opioid Education Hub at cmeoutfitters.com for more free resources and education for healthcare professionals and patients. And the last thing, I want to make sure that all of you receive your credit uh, <laughs> from this wonderful panel. So to receive credit from today's activity, please complete the post-test and evaluation online and click on the Request Credit tab. Um, I'd really like to thank Dr. Durham and Dr. Hyde. Um, I think they both had some excellent um, advice for how to treat chronic pain and acute pain. I definitely learned a lot today. I hope you learned a lot today, and I hope you enjoyed yourself like I did. Thank you so much for joining us. Be safe and take care.